verses 20 through 36. In our reading today, there are Greeks who came up to Jerusalem to worship. They also wanted to see Jesus. Perhaps they heard about his miracles. Perhaps they heard about him feeding the multitudes. Perhaps they heard about him raising Lazarus from the dead. And these Greeks represent the Gentile world who would be included along with the Jews in the redemption of lost sinners. And I think as we read this text, this is a sneak preview of Gentile salvation. And as Philip and Andrew bring the message to Jesus that these Greeks want to see him, it seems to signal in Jesus' mind that the climatic hour has dawned. His death is imminent. His death will draw all men unto himself without boundaries of race, without boundaries of color and culture. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The offer of salvation to all without distinction. So let's turn to John 12, 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men or all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Let's pray. Father, please open our hearts to the truth of this glorious text of scripture. 
Help us by your Holy Spirit to see Christ high and lifted up. And to proclaim his cross to all people. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. The Christian Herald newspaper, a newspaper based in England, writes this. A weary teacher fell asleep and had a dream. A message had arrived that the master was coming. And to her was appointed the task of getting all the little children ready for him. So she arranged them on benches in tiers, putting the little white children first, nearest to where the master would stand, then the little yellow, red, and brown children, and far back the black children. When all were arranged, she looked, and it did not seem quite right to her. Why should the black children be so far away? They ought to, perhaps, to be on the front benches. She started to rearrange them, but just as all was in confusion, footsteps were heard. It was the master's tread. He was coming before the children were ready. To think that the task entrusted to her had not been accomplished in time. The footsteps drew near, and she was obliged to look up. Lo, as her eyes rested on the children, all shades of color and difference had vanished. Little children in the master's presence were all alike. Although this is not a story about the Lord speaking through dreams, it does, however, drive the point home. There is no distinction in the Lord's eyes who can come to him for eternal life. And this is my proposition to you tonight, and this is probably the main theme of this text. Although there's a lot of themes running through there, we like to make it one concise theme. The time is now to lift up Jesus through the proclamation of his gospel and to see all types of people drawn to him and to have their lives transformed to the glory of God. And there are four points I want you to see in this text which are applicable to us today. And they are Jesus pursued, Jesus proclaimed, Jesus misunderstood, And Jesus departs. And we're going to look at just two of them because there's not enough time to look at the four. The first one is Jesus pursued. And if you and I want to have experiential knowledge of Christ, we must seek Him. We must pursue Him. And the last time I spoke, we looked at Jesus' triumphal triumphal entry into Jerusalem, if you remember that. And the crowds were in a frenzy. And hailing him as Israel's long-awaited king. And sadly, most in the crowd had the wrong idea of what kind of king Jesus was. They were expecting, as you remember, a warrior to free them from the Roman oppression. But Jesus did not come in his first advent as a military warrior. What he came was a lowly servant to redeem lost sinners. And as the crowd were hailing him in their misguided understanding for in a few days, they would cry out for his death, crucify him. The Jewish leaders were perplexed and they said to one another, look, the world has gone after them or after him. And little did they know, and this is the last time I spoke, little did they know that the world had gone after him. For in our opening verse, we see that it wasn't just the Jews that Jesus came for, but the Gentiles as well. Unknown, unbeknown to them, when they made that statement, the world has gone after them, they actually prophesied of the inclusion of the Gentile world, that the Gentiles would be grafted into God's plan of salvation. And I think this foreshadowed 
Israel's rejection of the Messiah and Jesus becoming a light to the Gentile world. Verse 20 and 22 again. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast was some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Jesus went and told Andrew and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. It was the Greeks, the Gentiles who wanted to see Jesus. And not merely to see him because they could have seen Jesus without the help of Philip. But the Greek word to see carries the idea to interview. They wanted to have an audience with Jesus. They wanted to interview him. So they pursued him. Now, who were these Greeks? It's not very clear who these Greeks were. They may have been Greek-speaking Jews, Hellenistic Jews, who lived outside of Judea. Or they could have been Gentile proselytes to Judaism. And by the way, this doesn't necessarily mean they were natives of Greece. But very possible Gentiles from any part of the Greek-speaking world at that time. The term Greek presumably was used as an umbrella for Gentiles. So it's possible they were Gentile God-fearers. Gentiles who worshipped the God of Israel who were in Jerusalem for the feast. In any case, Greeks more than likely represent Gentiles. They weren't Jews, they were Gentiles. And these Gentiles approached Philip requesting to see Jesus. Now it has been suggested that the reason why they went to Philip was because Philip and and Andrew, their names are Greek. Um, And Philip himself was hesitant because he in turn goes to Andrew. And this hesitancy may have been because they were still uncertain as to how or whether Jesus would receive the Gentiles. You you may remember in Matthew 10.5, when Jesus sent out the twelve to proclaim the kingdom of God, he explicitly says to them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In any event, Philip tells Andrew, who was not as hesitant, and they both go to Jesus and present the Greeks' request that they want an interview with him. And these Greeks were more noble than most of the Jews, and especially the Jewish leaders. They had the right idea. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We want to have an audience with Jesus. We want to interview this Jesus. There's nothing in the text that seems to indicate that they asked to see Jesus with wrong motives, which we'll see in a few moments. On the other hand, most of the Jews wanted to see Jesus to what they could get out of him. He'll free us from Roman oppression. He'll feed us. He'll heal us. He's a military conqueror. He could be our genie. He could be our Santa Claus. And worse yet, the Jewish leaders wanted to see Jesus so they could persecute him and put him to death. However, it appears that these Greeks wanted, to, wanted an audience with Jesus so they can genuinely hear him. In Jeremiah, most of you are familiar with this. 29.13, the prophet tells the Babylonian captive, captives what, Jesus, what God had said to them in a letter, that you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And I believe that these Greeks wanting to see Jesus not only gives us a preview of gentle, Gentile salvation, but a genuine seeking heart. And that's what God wants from you and me, a genuine seeking heart. 
If you and I genuinely desire to see and hear Jesus, guess what? You will. And if we don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, and we seek Him for salvation, guess what? We'll find Him. We'll see Him. We'll hear Him. And He will lift the burden of our sin from you. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the only way this can be put into effect is if what? We come to Him. In order to see Jesus, you need to come to Him. And I think in a broader application, you and I who are Christians never stop pursuing Jesus. Every morning I wake up, I want to see Jesus. That's what a disciple is. A learner, a seeker of the truth, a seeker of Christ. We seek Christ continually. And that's key right there. We don't seek Him once. We don't seek Him when someone gives an altar call and you raise your hand. You say, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. You don't seek Him once when you say the sinner's prayer. It's a continuously seeking of the Savior. We want to see Jesus continually. We continually look to Jesus as the author of Hebrew writes, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. By the way, you and I who are Christians have the beautiful honor of bringing those who are not Christians and want to see Jesus to Him by way of the gospel. We can bring those who pursue Jesus to Him. Philip and Andrew went to Jesus and told Him their request. Another thing we need to notice is they did it without prejudice. They could have said, sorry, Jesus is only talking to Jews today. Or... Stay away from me. You are unclean. Because that's the way way the Jews viewed the Gentiles. No. They took their request directly to Jesus. Do you and I make distinctions of who we bring to Jesus? Before you answer that, I think sometimes it's more yes than no. Sometimes we get a little prejudiced on who we're going to witness and share the gospel to. So how does Jesus respond? Our second point, which is our longest point. Jesus proclaims. He proclaims. And there are five proclamations that Jesus gives. And if we are true seekers of the truth, we will soon find out through these proclamations that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our our ways. It appears that Jesus does not respond to the direct request of the Gentiles. In fact, these Greeks are not mentioned again. They may have been in the crowd when Jesus responds, but we really, we really don't know. What we do know is Jesus' response was, was addressed to neither Jew or Gentile, but to all who would come to him for salvation. Jesus is not prejudiced. However, the Greeks did trigger Jesus' proclamation. When Philip and Andrew gave the request, Jesus said in verse 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It was the precise time for His glorification. That's the first proclamation. The hour has dawned. Up to this point in John's Gospel, the hour had not yet come. If you're familiar with John's Gospel, Jesus always said, The hour is not yet. The hour is not yet. The hour is not yet. And now He's saying, The hour... Has dawned. It's here. 
The Son of Man will be glorified. And the crowd is excited, especially in light of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem where they were hailing him as king. Even though they misunderstood Jesus' first advent, which was to suffer and die, their hearts must have skipped with excitement as they remembered Daniel's prophecy about the Son of Man who would come to set up a worldwide dominion and that would never end. Yes, the Romans will be defeated and his kingdom will be established forever. Yes, we're safe. And that's what they thought when Jesus said the hour has come. But disappointment quickly set in as Jesus proclaims to them something different. Way different than what they expected. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. The the hour has come. Yes. The precise time for his glorification. Yes. But it was also the precise time for his death. The second proclamation. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. When they heard this, they must have said, What? What do you mean, Jesus? A stunned crowd, I'm sure. What do you mean? They couldn't, comp- excuse me, they couldn't comprehend death for the Messiah. To this day, the Jews cannot comprehend death for their Messiah. The cross is still a stumbling block to them. And to the rest of the Gentile world, the cross is still foolishness. Dr. Kent Yu says, An abrupt hush settled among the, up, upon the crowd when they heard these words. Jesus was talking about a different kind of king. A king who would rule through death, not conquest. Jesus was to be glorified in his death, not conquering Rome, which they didn't understand. So Jesus gives a simple agricultural illustration concerning his death about a seed that falls into the ground and dies and then it can produce much fruit. Just as a seed must die in order to give life, also Jesus must die in order to give life to the world. His death, you see, was going to produce much fruit. I, I love gardening. I've always loved gardening. And at times I would plant different types of vegetables Tomatoes seem to be the easiest. And I usually cheated and bought a tomato plant already in the infant stage. However, that baby plant came from one tiny seed. And from that one seed, it will go into the soil. This is what happens. It goes into the soil and it dies. And will sprout up into a plant that will grow up and produce possibly hundreds of tomatoes. If the conditions are right. Well, Jesus' death has and will produce life in multitudes of people, past, present, and future, from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. Jesus proclaimed his hour for glorification through death. In his death on the cross, Jesus was obeying his Father and glorifying him. Next, Jesus proclaims the paradox. The third proclamation. The same way Jesus' death brought forth life, this same law applies to his disciples. Now we must notice this, and this is so important, and I hope no one in this room misses this. Right after Jesus speaks about his death that produces salvation in many people, and we all love to hear that, he goes right into the heart attitude of the one who receives salvation. 
And this is the heart of one truly converted by the grace of God. Verse 25. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's discipleship. See, it's not just about, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And then you go on your merry way. It's about hating your life. It's about losing it for the sake of Christ and His kingdom. It's about discipleship. It's about following Christ. It's not just about, I'm a Christian and I can do whatever I want. It's about Christ permeating a person's heart. Where He loves to live for the Lord. Death brings life for the true disciple of Christ. All four Gospels record this paradox. To relinquish our hold on life. To give it up is the way to participate in God's kingdom. If we pursue a life of ease, if we pursue a life of comfort and acceptance by the world, Jesus said you will not find eternal life. On the contrary, if we give up our lives, we sang, I surrender all. For the sake of Christ and his gospel, Jesus said, you'll find it. A person who has been truly saved by God's grace desires the latter. In Luke's gospel, Jesus was teaching on discipleship. And he said in 1420, by the way, this is all countercultural. This is going against the grain. He said in 1426 of John's gospel, now listen to this. I I want you to hear this. Now some of you have read this many times. And I've read it many times. But I have to keep going over it in my mind and heart. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and I'll explain that before some of you look very nervous. <laughs> a father and mother and wife and children, I love my wife. And children, I love my son. And brothers, and I love you. And sisters, yes, and even his own life. And I love myself. He cannot Be my disciple. What is he talking about here? For the genuine believer, a loss of life is the condition for the emergence of new life. He's talking about loving less than. Get your priorities straight, he's saying. Get your priorities straight. I love my wife, but I love Christ more than my life. And because I love Christ more than my own wife, now I have the capacity to love her even more. Death is the key to success. The renowned Ignacy Jan Paderewski, after a concert he performed, was approached by an admiring woman who said, Sir, you are a genius. To which he replied, Madam, before I was a genius, I was a drudge. You see, his brilliance came through death. That is hard work and self-denial. Did you know that the disciples of Jesus Christ were governed by paradoxes? 2 Corinthians, God's power is made perfect in what? Weakness. Matthew 20, 16, the last will be first and the first will be last. 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourself therefore in the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. The greatest must be a servant and so on and so forth. You want to be great? You serve Jesus saying. You want to be exalted? You humble yourself. You want to be 
First, you be last. You want to have strength, you admit your weakness. This is, once again, counter-cultural. When Brian gets up and preaches every single week, he preaches a counter-cultural gospel. It goes against the grain of the world. It goes against the grain of our, our, our human flesh. Our flesh cries out, I don't want that. His true disciples, those who serve him, follow him in humiliation. And later, in honor or glory. Being a servant of Jesus, we follow him in death. His ultimate obedience. The disciple is promised the ultimate honor or reward of being where Jesus is. Let me, let me back up a little bit. Serving Christ brings honor. Did you know that? <coughs> Serving Christ brings honor. If anyone wants to serve Christ, they, they have to follow him. Yes, we follow him by loving the needy, lost people, because that's what Jesus did. But more than that, we follow Jesus' obedience to his Father's will. Being a servant of Jesus, we follow him in death, which that was Jesus' ultimate obedience, fathering, uh, obeying his Father's will. The disciple is promised the ultimate honor or reward of being where he is. This is the promise of heaven. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, verses 2 and 3, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And these two promises, first that we may be where Jesus is, which is eternal heaven. And second, that the Father will honor us. They are promised to us if we follow Jesus. To be where he is and to... Be honored by the Father. Could you imagine that? Being honored by God the Father. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. I, I don't understand that, but it says it. Provided, He says, we suffer with Him in order that we may be also glorified with Him. I, I know I sound like a broken record, but American Christianity doesn't know too much about this. Provided we suffer with them, that in order that we may be what glorified with them. And John, the first epistle of John, verse uh, chapter two, verse six says, "Whoever whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked." So if we truly serve him, the promise is we will be with God forever and God the Father, Father will honor us. In other words, if we serve Christ by following him in suffering and death to our own desires, and sometimes that might, might take physical death, probably not in this country, uh, we will follow Christ to glory in heaven where the Father will honor us. All the glory and honor this world can possibly give you and me pales next to the honor that God will give us for those who honor His Son. 
1878, when William Booth's Salvation Army was beginning to make its mark, men and women from all over the world began to enlist. One man who had once dreamed of becoming a bishop crossed the Atlantic from America to England to enlist. Samuel Brengel left a fine pastorate to join Booth's army. But at first, General Booth accepted his services reluctantly and grudgingly. Uh, Booth said to Brengel, You have been your own boss too long. And in order to instill humility in Brengel, he set him to work cleaning the boots of other trainees. Discouraged, Brengel said to himself, Have I followed my own fancy across the Atlantic in order to... In order to black boots. And then as in a vision. He saw Jesus bending over the feet of rough unlettered fishermen. Lord he whispered. You wash their feet. I will black their shoes. Serving Jesus. Make no mistake about this. Serving Jesus starts with following him. Following him means we become like him. Becoming like him brings honor from the father. Next, Jesus proclaims his anguish, the fourth proclamation. Excuse me, let me take a sip. Verse 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. A few things we need to understand. Jesus understood his debt was paramount, to God's redemptive plan. And his deepest desire was to accomplish his father's will, which actually brought joy to his heart. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him. However, the other side of that, which the writer of Hebrew alludes to in that same verse, is that Jesus despised its shame. And at the thought that he would bear this shame of sin, that he would spare God's wrath and the separation from his father caused his soul to be troubled. And the Greek word for, for troubled is terasso. And it suggests strong inner turmoil and agitation. Hey, listen, Jesus facing the cross brought mental anguish. Another part of the gospel, it says that his, his sweat dropped, they were like drops of blood because he was that distressed. F.F. Bruce says, the the Johannine Jesus is no docetic actor in a drama about to play a part which he can't contemplate dispassionately because it does not really involve himself. In other words, what F.F. Bruce was was saying is, Jesus' anguish, anguish was not an act. An act that can play the part convincingly of a person in pain and not be in pain. However, Jesus' pain was real. He didn't go to the cross indifferent without any emotion. In his humility, Jesus felt the mental pain associated with bearing the curse for our sin. And so Jesus says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Now this is a difficult passage to um, interpret. Um, It's a difficult passage to follow in the original language. And it could be read two ways, and I'll paraphrase the two. In a rhetorical question, Jesus was saying, should I ask the Father to spare me from this cross? In other words, I'm troubled, but I won't ask the Father to spare me from what lies ahead, because that's why he sent me to do. Or, 
What can I say? Then directing his words to God said, Father, save me from this hour. Now I personally prefer the second rendering. Because the first one sounds like Jesus is not asking the Father to free him from the cross. As if he had not undergone any crisis. But we remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane did go through a crisis moment. Luke twenty two forty two tells us that Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Why? Because he knew the agony he, was, he had to face. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, this does not mean that there was any conflict between the will of the Father and the will of the Son. This was a perfectly normal expression of Christ's humanity. So in light of Jesus having a crisis moment in the garden, I think we can assume the same thing is happening here. However, even though the cross was horrifying to him, he willingly took it because it was his father's will. Jesus laid down his life willingly in obedience to the father. And that's the reason Jesus came, to die on a cross by his father's will. Now you and I will never have to face such a difficult situation. We will never. Only the eternal Son of God could endure this. But we are still called to obedience, which sometimes will cause us anguish. And in our obedience, in spite of our anguish, we will bring glory to God. Like Saraya, a Muslim woman in Syria, who was converted by the grace of God to Christianity. Her husband, a Sunni Muslim, would beat her, mistreat her, and verbally abuse her. Eventually, she had to leave her husband for safety. But soon she was to appear in a court of law before a Sunni judge for legal custody of her three children. She had to appear as a Sunni judge. Her husband was a Sunni Muslim. Do the math. And someone asked her, what would she say if the judge questioned her Christianity? And this is what she said. If they ask me in the, court of, in the court to choose between my kids and Christ, I am going to pick Christ. By the way, almost always custody is awarded to the father in Muslim countries. The good news is they didn't ask her and she did get custody. Now I'm sure she felt anguish knowing she had to face a Sunni judge, especially that her husband was a Sunni Muslim, and the great possibility of losing her children. And I'm sure she prayed, remove this child so I can have my children, Father. But I'm also sure Saraya prayed, nevertheless, God, not my will, but your will be done. We will never experience what Jesus experienced. We may never experience what Saraya experienced. However, as believers, we will experience at some point in our Christian walk a crossroad where our Heavenly Father is asking us to do something and it will bring anguish to us in our minds because as humans, every part of our old self is saying, I can't do this, I won't do this. But the new created, regenerated man or woman is saying, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And I think about the Old Testament prophets who God sent to Israel and Judah and sometimes to pagan nations over and over again to bring unpleasant messages because of their sin, because of their idolatry. 
And they knew they would not be received favorably. And they knew their lives were in danger. But they went anyway in obedience to their heavenly father, to the Jehovah God. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And because Jesus came to do his father's will, he prays, Father, glorify your name. This is the fifth proclamation. Verses 28 to 30. Jesus said, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Why did Jesus submit to this intense suffering? First and foremost, to the glory of God. Now, you might be thinking, well, Jesus came first and foremost to save people. No, he came first and foremost to do the Father's will. Obedience to the Father. Sorry, you're in second place, so am I. But that's okay. Because it did bring salvation. And then secondly, as I said, because he loved us. But first, Jesus did what he did for his Father's glory. He didn't say... Father, glorify my name. He didn't say that. He said, but glorify your name. And that's what consumed his whole life in ministry. Jesus said in 829, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Even in his exaltation, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, it is all for the glory of God his Father. Throughout the Old Testament, God did what he did for his glory. Ezekiel 36, 22, God tells the prophet, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, at the very onset of prayer, is to the glory of our Father. Hallowed be your name. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. It is what consumes our lives. It is what should consume our lives. Is the glory of God. And that's what Sonship Ministry, our mission statement is all about. It says, Sonship Ministries exists for the glory of God. That through the preaching of the gospel, man and woman will experience the saving and transforming power of Jesus Christ. If you want to know why we exist, we exist for his glory. And then we want to go out to the highways and the byways and see all kinds of people come into Christ's kingdom. The glory of God is what consumed Jesus and should be what consumes you and me. By the way, Jesus himself was also going to be glorified by what he was about to do. But the higher purpose of the cross was to glorify the Father because the Father's justice would be satisfied by the cross. There's much to say on this subject, but in John's gospel, the glorification of the Son is said to be derived from the glory of the Father. And because of the glorification of the Son, and it has been focused on the glorification of the Father, it has removed any sense of selfishness or self-centered ambition from the life of Jesus. After Jesus said that prayer, there was a thunderous response, a voice of affirmation. I mean, I'm not going to do a thunderous... But he said, I have glorified it, 
and I will glorify it again. I love when you watch the movies and they, they make the voice and the bass, you know. If you have a 5.1 surround sound, your whole house shakes, you know. <clears throat> this is one of the three times that God the Father spoke to His Son from heaven. At His baptism, the transfiguration, and this occasion. Dr. Andreas Kostenberger says, The Father strengthens Jesus' resolve and calms his troubled soul by affirming that his prayer has already been answered. How did Jesus glorify his Father's name? Apparently throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. The incarnation, when he entered the world, and the work of Jesus all through his life and ministry. Which showed God's power displayed in him to the world. But he also says, I will glorify it again. This will be accomplished through his death, the cross. Jesus finished the work his father had given him, and his father was glorified. You see, Jesus glorified his father through his ministry, but then he's going to glorify it again through his death. Jesus is our perfect example that we should follow. Everything he did brought honor and glory to his father. Why? Because God the Father permeated his life. <clears throat> he lived, Jesus lived in Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. God must permeate our lives so much that all we do is for his glory. Either we live a life that honors God, or we live a life that dishonors God. The equation is simple. Sin and disobedience does not glorify or honor the Lord. While being faithful and obedient honors and glorifies Him. You know what a good guide to live by is this? A good guide that you could ask yourself? How can I glorify God through this? If you're ever in doubt of what you ought to do, ask yourself the question, Will this bring glory to my Father in Heaven? Or will it dishonor Him? <clears throat> Remember, Jesus glorified God through His life and death. And we should do the same through our life and even through our death. We live for Him, but we're also, we're also willing to what? Die for Him. Someone once said, don't talk about dying for Him if you're not living for Him. If you can't live for Him, you're not going to talk about dying for Him. You're going to live for Him first in order to die for Him. And when the voice came from heaven, the crowd heard it, but were unable to grasp its significance. There was a misunderstanding of the sound from heaven. So they tried to explain the voice of thunder, which was often associated with the voice and power of God in the Old Testament. While others said it was an angel that spoke to him, which is also common in the Old Testament. But whatever they thought, they did not grasp its significance. For most in the crowd, it was an indistinguishable noise. That's all there was to them. And guess what? To the unredeemed mind, whenever you and I speak to them about Christ, it's indistinguishable noise. The reason why you and I hear and understand when we read the Word of God is because God in His mercy and grace has given us ears to hear when He speaks. Jesus tells the crowd as they were trying to figure out whether the voice or thunder, whether it was a voice of, that was thunder or an angel, that it came for their sakes. He corrects their misunderstanding. 
Now this might seem a bit confusing because the voice came in response to Jesus' prayer. But it did not, Jesus did not need to hear an audible voice to know his prayers were answered. Remember in the 11th chapter of John when Jesus prayed before raising Lazarus from the dead? He said, he said when he prayed before he raised Lazarus, he said, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around that they may believe you sent me. Also, if the crowd didn't understand the voice, how could it be for their benefit? And one commentator said it like this, even though the bystanders did not understand the words, the father's audible answer to Jesus' prayer still conveyed to them divine affirmation of the son. So Jesus didn't need to hear an audible voice to know his prayer would be answered. And even though the crowd did not understand the words, it still affirmed Jesus as God's son. The sixth and last proclamation is victory. Verse 31 to 33. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he would die. Now because of time, I am not going to develop this last proclamation fully. I'll give you a little synopsis of it. And the next time I speak, we will look at it in much more detail and use it as a transition to the last two points. Jesus' death, in reality, brought victory. It brought victory. His victory at the cross did three things, two negatively and one positive. It brought judgment on the world, it defeated Satan, and it drew all men to himself. First, it brought judgment on the world. And it's not speaking of future judgment. It's not talking about the great white throne judgment. It's not talking about the beam of seat of Christ or the judgment seat of Christ for Christians. No, this judgment is speaking about the judgment that the cross brings on the world now. Now is the ruler dethroned and that whoever refuses to believe in Jesus is already condemned or judged. As John 3.18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Dr. John Piper sums it up this way. In other words, the death of Jesus becomes a decisive dividing line between the condemned and the vindicated. If you trust Jesus, you are united to him and his death is your death. And his his condemnation is your condemnation. And if you never trust Jesus, you stand condemned both by your sin and by the rejection of the offer of forgiveness. And it's amazing also that the world thinks they stand in judgment of Jesus. But in reality, the cross of Jesus Christ condemns and judges the world, those who reject him. Secondly, Christ's death on the cross was his victory over Satan. The cross gave the final blow to dethrone Satan from his rulership in this world. He, lo- he loses his authority and influence, as the first gospel says, In Genesis 3.15. He shall bruise your head. Which prophetically means Christ will destroy Satan at the cross. And you shall bruise his heel. Meaning Satan will cause Christ to suffer. Satan was finally defeated at the cross. And you know I I laugh sometimes when I hear Christians go into such battle with Satan. As if he's. For the Christian he's defeated. The Bible says one thing. It says you don't go into battle with Satan. He says resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Resist him. And finally, the positive effect. 
His victory draws all people to himself via the cross. Verse 32 again. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now we know Jesus was speaking of his crucifixion because of the footnote in verse 33. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Through his death, Jesus would not only glorify his father, but he would draw all people to himself. This does not mean, as some have tried to make it mean, this does not mean universal salvation, that all people are going to be saved. Because scripture consistently speaks of only those who truly believe will have eternal life. The hour has come for Jesus to die in an old rugged cross and will draw the Greeks, the Spanish, the Irish, well maybe not the Irish, I don't know about that. (laughs) The Italian, the Afro-American, the Asian, the Russian, the Jew, the Arab, and so on. All types of people will be drawn to Christ. Christ broke down the wall of hostility between God and man, between Jew and Gentile. And I love Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 and 10. And John says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every what? Nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the next time I speak, I'll go into this a little deeper and transition into the last two points, as I said. Let's conclude bring a little more application. The hour has come. Jesus was about to die. The hour for his victory over the world and over Satan had come. The hour to draw all people to himself had finally arrived. The hour where the heart of a believer would be changed forever because of the cross is here. The hour where the believer would pursue and proclaim Christ is upon us. Our hour, Sonship's hour, your hour has come also to pursue and to proclaim the Lord Jesus now. And as as Christians, we want to pursue Jesus now and continually. We used to sing a song, Jesus in the morning. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus in the morning, Jesus in the noontime, Jesus Jesus, Jesus when the sun goes down. Continually. Continually. I hope you clap for the song, not my voice. I mean, we need to pursue him every moment of every day. We don't pursue him for salvation and then say, later Jesus, see you in heaven. No, we seek him continually through the word, through prayer, through fellowship. We also proclaim him now. The hour to proclaim him is now. And I want every eye on me. Every eye on me. There's a reason why I'm saying that. We lift up Jesus through the proclamation of the gospel and watch all types of people drawn to him. And we do this without prejudice. Sadly, for some Christians, the hour to proclaim Jesus is when they feel like it or when it's convenient. Listen, before I preach to you, I'm preaching to myself. 
But that's not biblical. To do it when it's convenient. God is willing and he's listening and ready to respond to repentant sinners now. 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 It's now. It's not. Jesus died. The work was already done. He said to his, to his disciples, go and make more disciples. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And it's a sad commentary on the Christian who waits to pursue and to proclaim Christ tomorrow. You know why? Tomorrow really never comes. Do it today. I hope this encourages you to do it today, to pursue Christ continuously and proclaim Him continuously. And if you're not a Christian, today, right now, you can pursue Jesus. He's willing now to come into your heart and transform your life. That's His promise. He's willing to forgive you and save you, no matter how deep your sin is. Now, the hour, the moment is now. And Jesus is pleading with you through the Spirit of God, through the preaching of the Word. Come now if you don't know me. Come and I will give you eternal life. Let's pray. And Father, help us to see and to react to the glorious truth of your gospel. Help us to act as children of the light and consider our lives less important in this world so that we may keep it for eternity. Help us to serve and honor you as we lift up your son through the preaching of the gospel to every living creature and to conduct our lives in accordance to your words and thus glorify you. We need your grace, God, and your spirit to accomplish this now. Father, we are confident that you will fulfill this in our lives because your word tells us you will. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.